This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we always enjoy reading and talking about comics by Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how the story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about the Warlord number 29 through 31, as well as John Sable number 19 and 20. And we have a special treat as we begin our coverage of the Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell, as we cover issues 202 and 203. And joining us to launch our coverage are two big fans of the Legion and Mike Grell, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast and Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog. We couldn't ask for two better authorities to take us through these issues. We won't be covering Green Arrow this episode, but tune in next time when we'll be covering a big four-part Green Arrow adventure. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with photos and news updates. In our previous episode, we mentioned Mike Grell's post about creating the art for the new single titled All the Same by Brainpower. The art features nine faces on a square grid, all different races, but all inherently the same. And Mike Grell talked about how proud he was to be part of this important message at a time when the world seems focused on what separates us rather than what unites us. It's a poignant song and generated lots of positive buzz online. And we heard from Brainpower himself about the episode. He thanked us for speaking about his collaboration with Mike Grell on that cover art. And we were happy to hear that the song is doing very well on the charts. Last time we mentioned the lyrics version of the music video, which showcases Mike Grell's art throughout. Now I've seen the official version of the video, and it's equally great. I still love the message, and I'm impressed by the landscapes and visuals used in this version. You can even catch a short scene where Brainpower is wearing a t-shirt with the album cover art, and there's an amazing sequence of several sunsets in the horizon with the Milky Way in the sky. It made me think of Mike Krell's Star Slayer. We will have a link to both versions of the music video for all the same in our show notes. The song has a great message, and it is fun to see Mike Krell's art as part of that. You might find it interesting to know that Brainpower first met Mike Grell at a European comic convention, and good things certainly came of that. And speaking of conventions, if you ever get an opportunity to meet Mike Grell at a convention, please do. He is always friendly and truly loves talking with his fans. He has a beautiful selection of prints and even does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you can't make it to a convention to meet Mike Grell, but would like to get an original drawing, just contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He is the official representative for Mike Grell for commissions. I always enjoy looking at Scott's website. There's lots of original comic pages from a variety of artists there, along with some incredible commissions. Just check out the CatskillComics.com link in our show notes, and you'll see what I mean. We always enjoy sharing listener feedback, and all of the conversations with listeners on social media are great. Feel free to join in the conversations or to write to us anytime. We'd love to hear your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. 
We'll provide our email address and some other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. While Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by Mark Schultz. We hope you'll try out our other shows and we'll include links to those podcasts in our show notes. The Wardlord, number 29, January 1980. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. This issue features two stories. Return of the Gladiator. Morgan is still on his journey to Shambhala when he sees a fire burning in the distance. From the location, he knows it will be a Theron village. Morgan is shocked by the desolation when he rides into the village. Thera and Shambhala are enemies, but no one would wish this carnage upon their enemy. Just then, a woman leaps upon Morgan with a knife in her hands. Morgan knocks her aside and demands to know why she attacked him, and she tells him that the soldiers who attacked the village carried the same shield that he does. He turns and looks at his shield and remembers that he got it while training as a gladiator and realizes it could be the very men he helped to liberate who are responsible for the destruction. Morgan follows the trail of the attackers and finds his former allies. There are few left. He learns that some returned home, but many died in battle over time. They have a new leader now, and Morgan turns to see a familiar face. It is Gedron, former captain to King Mashist, from when Morgan was forced to cut the hand from his friend in order to free him from the demonic power of a cursed axe. Yet here stands Gedron, wielding that same axe. Morgan calls him a fool, telling him he will never be able to put down the axe. But Gedron turns and throws the axe into a nearby tree, telling Morgan he can put down the axe anytime, because the axe knows he will choose to take it back up for battle. That is why Mashis could not put it down, because the axe knew he would not choose to pick it back up. Morgan challenges Gedron to battle, and the two fight at the edge of a pool of lava. The axe gives Gedron immense power, and he soon has Morgan pinned to the ground. But as he swings the axe for the killing blow, Morgan swings his sword, cutting Gedron's hand and sending the axe flying into the pool of lava. Gedron screams in pain and stumbles backwards, following the axe into the molten lava. Morgan turns to his former allies and tells them they need to take responsibility for their actions, and he rides off, continuing his journey. The cover features a dynamic image of Morgan poised for battle, a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. The double-page title page is a great image of the woman leaping at Morgan in the destroyed village. Her knife is raised and Morgan has a shocked look on his face. The action sequences for the main fight with Gedron are outstanding. The poses are dynamic. You really get the sense of the motion of the sword and axe as they swing by, and you see just how fast the two are moving to dodge blows and move to strike each other. I love the way Mike Grell revisits characters and stories from past issues, and it was great to see the story of this axe come back around as well as revisiting what has become of the gladiators Morgan once helped to liberate. A very satisfying story. Wizard World, Hound from Hell. Mashista and Mariah are trapped in the past with the wizard Mongo Ironhand, who has just cast a spell that conjures a giant three-headed dog. It snarls at each of them and then leaps toward Mariah. Mashist rushes to defend her, grabbing the dog from behind, but the dog flips him and he crashes to the ground, dazed. The dog turns to attack the defenseless Mashist, but Mongo casts another spell as the giant beast leaps and suddenly a small fluffy three-headed bunny rabbit drops onto Mashist's chest. 
Finally having a free moment, Mashista and Mariah tell Mongo how they were transported into the past and ask him to return them to their time. Mongo doesn't have that expertise, but knows someone who might. Rolf the Wretched, the head wizard. As the three ride off to search for Rolf, Mashista is embarrassed that instead of horses, they must ride on the backs of giant chickens. While Mariah explains these are diatremous and are actually faster than horses, that hardly relieves Mashista's embarrassment. This is another fun little chapter of Wizard World. I laughed at the transformation of the giant dog into a cute bunny, and the character of Mongo is great. Hopefully we will see more of him. And I thought the giant chicken creatures, complete with their harnesses and reins, were another fun touch for the story. I appreciate a mix of humor or lighter storylines in a series like this. The variety makes it more interesting, and I think in a way more real, because it is in human nature to look for humor, even in challenging times. The Warlord, number 30, February 1980. Warpath, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. While riding through the jungle, Morgan hears the sound of metal scraping against metal in the distance. He climbs into the trees and sees a Theron army marching toward Shambhala. Just then a leopard attacks him, but he knows he can't fire his gun without attracting the attention of the army. He pulls out his knife as the two battle in the trees. Dispatching the leopard, Morgan then rushes forward. His only hope of getting ahead of the army is to cross the swamp. But nothing is easy, and Morgan is attacked by a giant reptile and pulled underwater. His sword in hand, he kills the creature and swims back to the surface, deciding it will be safer to swing through the trees like Johnny Weissmuller as Tarzan. Dropping to the ground, he is confronted by a woodsman. Morgan explains the situation, and the man is concerned for his wife and child who are at a nearby cottage. Morgan convinces him to help him warn the two outposts to the east and west. If he will do that for him, Morgan assures him he will help to protect his family. The two men rush off in opposite directions to warn the outposts and to have them send runners to warn the city of Shambhala. Later, the two meet back up at a river at the base of a waterfall, just as the Theron army comes into view. Taking the woodsman's axe, Morgan tells the man to rush on to save his family while he delays the army. Morgan makes his stand on a narrow bridge that crosses the river. This prevents the army from surrounding him, but he can't hold them off for long. Back at his cottage, the woodsman sees that his wife and child are safe, and we see that the boy wears a peculiar metal band on his arm. It is Joshua the son who both Morgan and Tara believe is dead, wearing Morgan's wristwatch. The woodsman turns his attention to the logs he has stacked along the riverbank. He releases them into the river, knowing they will quickly travel downstream. Back at the bridge, Morgan sees the logs beginning to come over the waterfall far above and jumps from the bridge back to the shore to safety, just as the logs crash into the bridge, destroying it. The army has been delayed, but they will be back. War is coming to Shambhala. The cover features a view of Morgan standing with axe and shield in hand on the bridge at the river while spears fly toward him. The double page title page features a surprise Morgan being confronted in the trees by the leopard. The scene in the swamp was great fun and features a fantastic full splash, get it, splash page of Morgan fighting the reptile underwater. And there's another amazing splash page in this issue. It shows the soldiers about to appropriately splash into the water as they fall from the bridge. The perspective is really good, and I love the waterfall and cliffs in the background. The twist of the woodsman we meet having Joshua was a great surprise, and along with the cliffhanger of the looming war really sets up what's ahead for the Warlord. The Warlord, number 31, March 1980, Wings Over Shambhala. 
Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker Vince Coletta. Colors Adrian Roy. Letters Ben Oda. Editor Jack C. Harris. Morgan is continuing his journey to Shambhala. Besides his desire to be reunited with Tara, he now also needs to warn the city of the Theron army that is on the march. But nothing is easy in Skataris, and Morgan finds himself pursued by a pack of wild dogs. The first attack comes on the shore of the river. Killing one of the dogs, Morgan hopes to escape them by following the river's currents, but back on land, he is quickly pursued again. Spotting an ancient, decaying stone pyramid in the distance, Morgan races toward it in the hopes that a higher vantage point will help him against the pack of dogs. Backing against a column of carved stone, Morgan triggers a trap door and drops down inside the pyramid into a room filled with a huge mound of gold and jewels. Taking in his surroundings, Morgan sees the mummified bodies of two giant trolls that must have guarded the treasure long ago. Morgan reads the column of ancient carvings on a wall. The writings are signed by a sorcerer named Mongo Ironhand, and the carvings date from the age of the wizard kings when elves, goblins, and dwarves lived in peaceful harmony until the coming of the evil one who spread desire for gold and war across the land. The wizard kings of the seven cities gathered all of their treasures into the single pyramid to hide them from the evil one. Looking around at the treasures, Morgan sees a beautiful polished red shield adorned with an image of a black bird. Having lost his shield earlier, he knows this will be useful. But what Morgan hasn't noticed is that the mummified trolls have been slowly reviving and suddenly both lash out with axes and spears. Morgan swings his sword valiantly and strikes both trolls multiple times, but neither are injured, and Morgan realizes they are dead, but still driven to protect the treasure. Morgan pulls out his gun in desperation, knowing it won't work, but when one of the trolls walks into the shaft of sunlight streaming through the trap door, its skin smolders and begins to burn, and Morgan realizes they can't withstand the sunlight. He tilts his new polished shield toward the trap door, catching and redirecting the light onto the two trolls, both of which burst into flames. Climbing out of the pyramid, Morgan triggers the trap door to close, sealing the treasure back inside, knowing it could be useful in the future. Looking across the tops of the trees, he sees the glittering city of Shambhala in the distance and begins to walk toward it. But he hasn't noticed that the sunlight is having a different effect on his new shield. Suddenly, a giant black bird emerges from the image on the shield, Flapping its wings, it grasps Morgan in its large talons and begins to fly away. Morgan strikes at it with his sword, but it passes through the bird as though it's made of shadow. Morgan stares forlornly at the city of Shambhala as the great giant bird flies overhead. He even gets a fleeting glimpse of Tara before the giant bird turns out to see. In the distance, storm clouds form and a burst of lightning strikes the bird and it drops Morgan. He plummets into the sea near an island and swims ashore, wondering what adventures await him next. The cover features an exciting image of Morgan, grasped in the talons of the giant black bird as it flies over the jungles of Skataris. The double-page title spread features Morgan on the stone pyramid while locked in battle with three wild dogs his sword piercing one of the dogs while the other two snap at his heels. I love the layout on the page where Morgan falls through the trap door, especially the angular panel used to show his fall. It helps show the speed and force of the fall. And the trolls are huge, powerful, and ugly, and made for a great fight. 
There's so much excitement and adventure in this issue that it just races forward nonstop. And I really like the way the story referenced the wizard Mongo Iron Hand and therefore tied into the Wizard World backup stories featuring Mashista Mariah. And I look forward to seeing what happens next. I also like the twist that while the shield seems to be a blessing at one point in the story, it definitely turns out to be a curse in the end. The next issue features the first appearance of a fan-favorite character, but you will have to come back next time to hear that story. Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and I record a group of comics fan podcast features under the name I'm the Gun. I've been asked so many times about such a ridiculous-sounding name. Scratch that. Someone once asked me about such a ridiculous-sounding name and where it came from. Well, I'll answer that right here. I'm the Gun was the catchphrase, the battle cry, the mantra of an obscure DC Comics war hero introduced back in the mid-1960s Steve Savage the Balloon Buster. Steve Savage was the first subject of I'm the Gun when I began it as a blog back in 2014, and Savage is a great example of the kind of story, the kind of character I like to cover on the show. I'm the Gun lives in the third string, the fourth string. I love the C-listers and the D-listers, and in the age of the trade and the omnibus, hope to champion the underappreciated, and the uncollected. And I do this on features like ITG's ABCs, in which I look at shorts found in anthology titles and in backup stories. Shanna Showcase, in which I index the significant solo appearances of Marvel Comics' greatest jungle queen, Shanna the She-Devil. Reboot Review, where I'm looking at, at least at the time of this recording, the criminally uncollected adventures of the post-zero hour Legion of Superheroes. And where's the trade in which I ask the rhetorical, titular question and shine a light on some favorite run or title that has yet to be reprinted? Along the way, other odds and ends may find their way into the feed, so if this sounds at all interesting to you, I encourage you to check the show out on iTunes, on Google Play, or at its home on the blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. That's I'm the Gun, the comics podcast named after the most famous catchphrase or battle cry in comics. After Up, Up, and Away, and Avengers Assemble, and Shazam, Suffering Sappho, Got Long Live the Legion, of course there's Hawkeye, and Flame On, and it's clobbering time, Excelsior, and Brightest Day, and Blackest Night, Hulk Smash. John Sable Freelance, number 19, December 1984. Prey, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Dialogue consultant, Henry. The story opens with John Sable crossing the snow-covered Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in Africa at 19,710 feet. Descending to the warmer savanna, Sable stops to drink water at a pool where a giraffe and several zebra are also drinking. All the time, Sable is alert and looking all around, and as he moves on, we see why when a group of armed men later stop to check for tracks at the same pool. As night approaches, Sable shelters himself in a rocky outcrop and dreams of his wife Elise and children who were taken from him so long ago. The next day, he approaches a house. An older couple watch him from their front porch. It is Colonel Nicholas McKenna and his wife Ruth, Elise's parents. The colonel tells Sable to go away. He's already brought enough sorrow to the household, and the colonel knows that bounty hunters are on Sable's trail. Sable replies, saying he had nowhere else to go, and he needs food and ammunition. He is down to one bullet. He didn't expect to still be a wanted man when he returned to Africa. When Sable doesn't leave, the colonel turns and walks out into the savannah. Ruth tries to console Sable, telling him that the colonel doesn't hate him. He knows Sable loved his daughter, but that doesn't take away the pain. As she and Sable talk, he tells her about the children's books that he writes. He used to think it was just for money, 
but now he realizes the part of him that writes those books is all that's left of the man he once was. As dark approaches, Sable picks up his gun and leaves. When the colonel returns, his wife Ruth points out that Sable left without the ammunition that he needed. The colonel picks up a photo of Elise. Staring at the picture, he can hear the bullets from the guns that killed her and the children. The colonel picks up his gun and walks into the night. The cover features an incredible view of John Sable standing on the savannah, his head encircled by a golden sun. A herd of elephants fill the foreground. There is no dialogue at all in the first half of the book. Instead, it is filled with glorious views of Kilimanjaro, followed by the savannah. Amazing images of trees, giraffes, zebra, elephants, and more fill each page. Every single page in this sequence is a true work of art. Sable is constantly on the move, always alert and traveling with herds of animals to hide his trail. The meeting with Elisa's parents is heartbreaking. They have all endured so much pain that it is difficult for any of them to move forward. While Mike Grell doesn't specifically tell us what happens next, it is clear that while the colonel is filled with pain and anger, he isn't going to let anything happen to John Sable. He is going to ensure that Elisa's husband is safe. John Sable Freelance, Issue 20, January 1985. The Rookie, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Veteran Officer Parker is patrolling with a rookie named Rhodes. Parker's cynicism can't dampen Rhodes' enthusiasm for the job. Rhodes' father was also a cop who thought the same, and even though he was killed in an ambush in an alley, Rhodes still believes that cops can make a difference. The two notice a drug buy in an alley. Rhodes is out of the car and running and corners the suspect. When the man pulls out a knife, Rhodes easily knocks him to the ground. John Sable and Eden Kendall are arriving at his house. The manuscript for the latest book by B.B. Flem is finally finished, and Sable slips the thick book into his coat. Stepping inside, the two are confronted by Sonny Pratt, brandishing a sword and dressed as a swashbuckler. He tosses a sword to Sable, hoping for a duel, but Sable is much more concerned when he sees the empty bottle of champagne. That was intended for him and Eden to celebrate finishing the book, but Sonny has finished it off alone. Sable hands a sword to Eden and tells her to hold off Sonny while he walks to get another bottle of champagne. Walking into the store, Sable says hello to Ed behind the counter, but notices he looks nervous. The other two men in the store were in the middle of a robbery, but Sable interrupted. Realizing Sable has noticed something is wrong, the two men pull out their hidden weapons. One has a shotgun, and the other a pistol. Hearing sirens approach, the man with the pistol points his gun at the shopkeeper and prepares to pull the trigger, but Sable shoves the other man's shotgun, causing it to pivot and fire, killing the man holding the pistol. Sable then leaps over the counter and pulls Ed to the floor just as the man with the shotgun turns to fire at them. He then runs out the back door and Sable follows him just as officers Parker and Rhodes arrive. Sable rushes out the back alley while pulling out a small derringer. Just as he enters the alley, Rhodes yells for him to freeze. Sable turns toward him with a derringer in hand and Rhodes begins shooting, firing all six bullets and continuing to pull the trigger even after all of the chambers are empty. Parker and Ed the shopkeeper run into the alley and Ed cries out, You shot the wrong guy! As Rhodes calls an ambulance, Parker administers CPR. Meanwhile, someone in the gathering crowd sees the Derringer laying on the ground and picks it up and puts it in their coat and walks away. Sable is rushed to the hospital. 
One of the six bullets hit his hip. Of the five bullets that hit his torso, two were stopped by his customized jacket, while another was stopped by the manuscript in his pocket. But the remaining two bullets caused serious damage, and he is immediately taken into surgery. Meanwhile, Rhodes is being questioned at police headquarters. He claims Sable had a gun, but no gun has been found. Sonny and Eden are in the hospital waiting room when Mike Blackman arrives. Eden introduces Mike to Sonny, and Sonny replies, John talks about you all of the time, which surprises Eden, and she stares at Mike quizzically. The doctor comes out to tell them that the surgery went well, and Sable has a good chance of recovering. As the three relieved friends of John Sable talk among themselves, they realize they don't really know him very well. At times, he seems to be a self-centered glory hound, while at other times, he puts his life on the line for people he barely knows. When Sable is finally well enough to talk, Detective Winters comes to visit. He isn't really concerned about Sable, but he has a cop who is in trouble. His career is dependent on whether or not Sable had a gun. Sable readily says that he did and tells Winters that the only mistake the cop made was that he hesitated before he shot. Sable could have easily killed him if he wanted to. Before leaving the room, Winters hands Sable the manuscript, explaining that it saved Sable from the bullet that would have killed him. As Sable stares at the name, B.B. Flim on the cover, he looks up to see that Winters has a knowing smile on his face. The cover is almost solid blue. A close-up of the shocked look of the young cop's face staring at the body of John Sable laying in a pool of blood. The sequence with Sable and Eden being confronted by Sonny Pratt is terrific. The dialogue is funny, and the expressions on Eden's face are priceless. The page when Sable runs into the alley and is confronted by Rhodes is great. The background of the page is Sable pulling out the Derringer, while the rest of the page is made up of images of him and the cop. The many images look like a series of photos that have been dropped on the ground and scattered all around. It has a great effect that adds to the frantic confusion of the situation. The conversation among Eden, Mike, and Sonny is enlightening. Eden in particular admits that she and Sable really just use each other, but aren't really that close at all. And I thought it was sweet that Mike drew a leprechaun in Sable's room when she visited him. Hey folks, and welcome to the Geek Brain Popcast. I am Jeff Messer. I am your host for all things geek each and every week. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on our main website, 880therevolution.com. That's where I work as a radio host five days a week. But I can't wait to get my geek on each and every week as we share stories from the world of geek. Movies, TV, comic books. Hey, you know, comic books. The source material. We have great discussions plus interviews. And I'm not ashamed to let people know that my geek flag is flying high. I'm very proud to be a geek. I'm a lifelong fan of comics, of science fiction. I'm a Star Wars kid. I'm a big, big fan of DC, Marvel, you name it. We cover everything you can think of and a little bit more. From The Walking Dead to Star Wars to Star Trek, Doctor Who, comic books, DC, Marvel, Batman, Superman, Iron Man, you name it, we cover it. And if you have any suggestions, please send them our way. Check us out on Facebook, the Geek Brain Popcast. You can comment there and follow our antics. Plus, tune in each and every week as we go deep into the geek right here at the Geek Brain Popcast, where geeks have finally inherited the earth. Up next, we begin our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with three Aquaman stories featured in Adventure Comics. 
And if you would like to hear more about those issues, check out episode 181 of the Fire and Water podcast, where we joined host Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine to discuss those three stories. Shortly after those Aquaman issues, Mike got the job as the artist on Legion. He had a rough start on the book because the previous artist was a fan favorite, and the writers were killing off a favorite character just as he started. However, his excellent artwork quickly won over the fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issue 202 through issue 224. And if you're interested in learning more, then check out episode 8 of our podcast, which features Mike Grell talking about his career in his own words. While we love all things by Mike Grell, we recognize there are other fans more knowledgeable about the Legion of Superheroes, so we've decided to invite a couple of guests onto the show to discuss these stories. And if you're interested in covering a future issue of Legion of Superheroes for us, then send us an email. We would love to have other Legion experts covering these great issues going forward. And if you're a Legion fan, or just interested in learning more about the team, then there is no better place to start than with the Legion of Superbloggers. Their extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group, and we'll provide links in our show notes. Legion of Superheroes, number 202, May 1974. Lost, a million miles from home. Writer, Carrie Bates. Pencils, Dave Cockrum. Inks, Mike Grell. Letters, Joe Letterese. Colossal Boy and Shrinking Violet are returning to Earth following a mission to Alpha 4, where they stopped a fleet of menacing raiders. Colossal Boy sets the Legion cruiser to maximum speed, but Shrinking Violet notices the instruments indicate the ship's power is rapidly fading. Within moments, the cruiser is floating dead in space. Donning a spacesuit, Colossal Boy goes outside to check the spacecraft for damage. Inside, Shrinking Violet is relieved to see the power return to the ship, and assumes Colossal Boy has repaired it. Moments later, Colossal Boy re-enters the ship, and suddenly the power fades away again and the two realize Colossal Boy is somehow draining the ship's power. Though Shrinking Violet doesn't like the plan, Colossal Boy puts back on his spacesuit and chooses to remain on a small asteroid that is nearby, while she takes the ship to Earth to get help. However, just as Shrinking Violet departs, the surface of the asteroid begins to grow up around Colossal Boy, pulling him down inside, and he knows he can't use his power to break free without destroying his spacesuit. He calls out to Shrinking Violet on the telepathic transmitter plug, but she is out of range. Back in the cruiser, and knowing the round trip will take too long, Shrinking Violet first chooses to watch the video documentation of their mission on Alpha 4, where she notices a sniper in the background shoot Colossal Boy, but he only reacts as if he was bitten by an insect. This gives her an idea, and she rushes back to the asteroid, but Colossal Boy is nowhere to be found. Then she hears a faint SOS coming from the rock. She quickly takes the small asteroid inside the cruiser, knowing that Colossal Boy will be able to use his power to break free once he is safely inside the ship. Colossal Boy breaks free from the rock, but when he looks around for Shrinking Violet, he can't find her. Then suddenly she appears. She shrunk herself down to microscopic size to extract the power-absorbing bullet the sniper had shot Colossal Boy with back on Alpha 4. Now that it is out of his system, the power won't be drained from their ship, and the two begin their trip back to Earth. Greetings, fans of Warlord Worlds and Mike Grell. My name is Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast and iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio. And let me say before I get started here that I just want to send a big thank you to both Darren and Ruth, who run an exceptional podcast series here with Warlord Worlds as well as their other podcasts. But two nicer people you could not find and wish to meet. And I'm so happy that we hooked up well over a year ago as mutual fans of Mike Grell 
And between us, we've all gotten to hang out together with Mike Grell, kind of in a group setting on several occasions. And it's just, it's been a wonderful experience. Now, I'm so honored to be invited by Darren and Ruth to take part in the Warlord Worlds podcast as they move on into a new era of Mike Grell. Well, maybe an old era of Mike Grell is more appropriate. His time on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes back in the early to mid-1970s, taking over the art chores from comic book legend Dave Cockrum. I am one of those people who is a Mike Grell fan that started with Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes when I was only six years old. And one of the first comic books that I ever got from my grandfather was an issue of Superboy and the Legion. So it is an honor to be doing this with Darren and Ruth. And they have asked me to cover, for this month's Warlord Worlds, the very first Mike Grell appearance in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes as an inker over Dave Cockrum. This is a brand new Legion featurette that was in issue 202 of Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes. Now, a uh, little backstory quickly. Superboy, uh, as a title, was the new home for the Legion of Superheroes, and they eventually took over the title and took over the numbering, and it became their flagship book because they became more popular, I guess, than Superboy. But uh, once they joined the book, it primarily became... Superboy's Adventures in the 30th Century with the Legion of Superheroes. Now, issue 202 is a 100-page, 60 cents, ooh, 60 cents for 100 pages. Uh, it includes several stories in there, including some reprints, but also it has a brand new one. And uh, let me just say one of the interesting things about the comics of, of this era, I was rereading a bunch of these, and, and I have the Legion of Superheroes archives, the hardcovers with the reprints in them. And uh, a lot of these are just simple, you know, six-page backup features featuring just a couple of heroes like this one featuring Colossal Boy and Shrinking Violet. And they really fit with the format of the Saturday morning cartoons. This feels like the, the writing style, the approach to this, was a throwback to the 60s Super Friends shorts that later led to the full-length Super Friends uh, half-hour cartoons in the 1970s. They're very short. They have a very simple sort of uh, setup, conflict, and resolution that plays out in just six short pages. Now, this featurette is called Lost, A Million Miles From Home. And it is a story with, as I said before, Colossal Boy and Shrinking Violet. Colossal Boy, we find later, has a crush on Violet and lots of foreshadowing of more complex relationships that evolve as the writing becomes more complex. It's, it's very basic the way these issues uh, are written. And a lot of the storytelling is very on the nose. Colossal Boy can make himself very tall. Shrinking Violet can make herself very small. So it fits that the two of them are together. It's kind of having opposite powers. Very, very surface. You know, not a lot of complexity going on there. But this story picks up when we see that they're both returning from a uh, mission on uh, planet Alpha 4, and they're reviewing the Vizzy tapes of their action, which is almost like there's documentary cameras uh, everywhere filming them as they're performing superheroics. So they're looking at the Vizzy tape, and then they're on their way home a million miles away, although uh, scientifically I'm, I'm sure that that doesn't work out for all those sci-fi purists out there, a million miles, you know, light years, so forth and so on. So the, uh, the two of them are on board the ship, and they're having a good old time, but suddenly as they're trying to leave, the ship loses all of its power, and they're just stuck in space floating there. They can't figure it out. They're frustrated that the two of them have superpowers that are not going to help them in any way, shape, or form. You know, uh, Shrinking Violet is trying to, to get the transmitter to reach out to other Legionnaires, but the, there's no power. They're on emergency power. She's frustrated. She throws her headset. If only Superboy or Monel were along with us, you know, she's very frustrated. And Colossal Boy trying to comfort her, you know, hey, calm down. It's Everything's going to be okay. And then he uh, puts on his spacesuit 
And this is back in the uh, Legion days where they had to wear spacesuits with the big bubble helmets. And he goes outside to check and see if there's uh, maybe uh, small meteors clogged in the uh, solar terminals. But nope, that's not it. But while he's outside of the ship, the power comes back on. Colossal Boy comes back aboard because it's like, yay, we got the power back on. And as soon as he gets back on the ship, the power goes out again. And of course, they very quickly determine it's him. It's Colossal Boy. He's a part of the problem. So uh, this is very, very much a, a foreshadowing of later. Colossal Boy, anytime he's flying the ship, uh, there's a running gag that uh, he crashes more often than he uh, than not. So they're on board the ship and they think, well, we, we've got to do something. And Colossal Boy decides he, he has to uh, basically maroon himself on an asteroid while she flies off and finds help and then comes back and gets him because the ship won't fly with him on board. So he, he lands on this asteroid, this little uh, meteor, if, if you will, and it comes alive and it starts like uh, – morphing around him and growing around him and he's trying to he's trying to grow larger but it doesn't work so shrinking violet she gets on the ship and she's bugged by this as she's flying off to get help and she's like let me look at those visi tapes one more time so she goes back and she looks at the mission that they were on and there's a point that she sees that uh, colossal boy slaps his neck like you know a mosquito or something flies by and he gives one of those whap on his neck and she's like well that looks strange so she zooms in and she finds a sniper who fired uh, like this little uh, capsule into colossal boy's neck and she realizes ah it's sabotage so she goes back to find him she can't find him and then she her, their telepathic plug she picks up sounds coming from inside of this meteor and she realizes oh my gosh that's him he's in there and uh, you know eventually she helps him escape and tells him what has happened, and she shrinks down and goes to his neck and plucks out this little tiny thing that one of the raiders fired into his neck on Alpha 4, has solved essentially the mystery of why this little tranquilizer dart thing was keeping the ship from being operable with Colossal Boy on board, and they've neutralized it, and then they're back on their way to Earth. And that's it. Boom. There you go. Really short, really concise uh, backup story in the Legion of Superheroes. Six pages, inked by Mike Grell. You know, I got to say the Mike Grell artwork is, is pretty tremendous in this. Even as an inker, you see his style starting to shine through and it's uh, foreshadowing uh, things to come. The greatness that is yet to come from Mike Grell as the artist on the book. Not much really to it. It is it is basic. It is simple. This would be, I would think, maybe a, like a tryout, a six-page tryout for a new artist or something like that, that that would never see the light of day in modern comics. But for whatever reason, it was one of the features in this story. Really small adventures taking just a couple of legionnaires and focusing on them. Some bigger, better, greater stories certainly coming along down the pike here. Uh, Carrie Bates was the author of that one. And again, Dave Cockrum, Pencils, Mike Grell, Inks, Lost, A Million Miles from Home, a new Legion featurette, and the debut of Iron Mike Grell as the artist. And of course, big things are coming in the next few issues. Grell has a tremendous run on it. We'll be covering that in the near future. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Messer, and again, I'm of the Geek Brain Popcast and iHeartRadio. You can find us on Facebook, Geek Brain Popcast. You can also subscribe to my podcast series on iTunes under Geek Brain Popcast, and be sure and leave a review over there. That's it. Back to Darren and Ruth. Legion of Superheroes, issue 203, July 1974. Massacre by Remote Control. Writer Carrie Bates. Art, Mike Grell. Letters, Ben Oda. It's night in 30th century Metropolis, and we find four intruders dressed in black costumes breaking into Legion headquarters. Monel, Superboy, and Sunboy hear the alarm and quickly respond. Sunboy captures one of the intruders using a ventilation shaft, while Monel captures two others who have entered through the basement. 
However, in the Legion Museum, the fourth intruder plants a postage-sized device just as Superboy arrives, but he is too late. The intruder laughs and says, I won, and removes his hood. It is Element Lad, and this was all an exercise to test the Legion headquarters' defenses. Just then, the other so-called intruders arrive, and we see they are Karate Kid, Phantom Girl, and Lightning Lad. But everyone is confused because the Invisible Kid was supposed to be guarding the museum. The group searches the museum, and Monel hears a moan and finds the Invisible Kid, who is just becoming visible. In the medical lab, Brainiac 5 examines the Invisible Kid, and using a Mento scanner, he and Monel see what happened during the test. When the Invisible Kid becomes transparent, he actually enters an alternate invisible world. As the two stare at the view screen from the Mento scanner, they see the Invisible Kid in a world of swirling mists, meeting with a beautiful woman named Myla. She is telling him something important, when suddenly the screen goes blank, and they realize he must have heard something shocking that caused him to pass out. Feeling better the next day, the Invisible Kid is walking with Phantom Girl, and he tells her about Myla. The two have been in love for a long time, but are unable to be together because he cannot stay in the alternate world for long periods of time. But he has developed a machine to bring Myla to their world, and he plans to ask her to marry him the next time he sees her. Meanwhile, Dream Girl is warning Superboy and Monel that she had a vision that the powerful creature Volidus is going to attack. But this confuses them all because Volidus is controlled by Tharok, who is in the space prison on the other side of the solar system. Superboy flies off and sees Volidus heading toward Earth. He tries to stop him, but Volidus is so powerful he throws Superboy through the wall into Legion headquarters. The Legionnaires all attack, but can't stop Volidus. But it is the Invisible Kid who realizes what has happened. Several components from Therok's robot brain are on display in the Legion Museum. They must be controlling Volidus. Invisible Kid grabs the components, but just then Volidus grabs him in his giant hands. Just as the Invisible Kid is able to crush the components, Volidus crushes the Invisible Kid. The other Legionnaires rush to their friend, but he is already dead. Suddenly, Myla appears from the Invisible World. The shocking news she gave the Invisible Kid earlier was that she had died and all that is left of her is a ghost. As she fades away, she tells them that she and the Invisible Kid can now be together forever. Hey, Darren and Ruth. It's Ange from the Supergirl Comics Box Commentary site, coming here to help review Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 203. I want to thank you for inviting me onto your show. As you know, these issues have a special place in my heart, as I consider the Mike Grell-era Legion of Superheroes comics to be the first comics that I ever read. And in particular, issue 203, which I'm helping cover, is a pretty important issue in Legion of Superheroes history because it involves the death of a Legionnaire, something that happened relatively rarely, but tended to stick, which is something that we can't always say in comics. If you're a Legionnaire and you die, you tend to stay dead. This issue is called Massacre by Remote Control. The basic gist is that the Legionnaire Invisible Kid is found unconscious, and it's discovered that when he activates his invisibility powers, he's able to somehow dematerialize a little bit and see into another dimension or realm. And as he's been doing that recently, he's uh, been in a relationship with a young woman named Myla, a beautiful woman who he visits and intends to marry. 
Um, there is a little bit of a hand wave of this element of his power. In the past, he had only been able to just turn invisible, so this dematerialization and seeing into other dimensions is definitely something that I only read of within this issue. Throughout the issue, though, there is a threat that is happening uh, we're seeing in the Legionnaire's Trophy Room a case in which broken bits of the electronic brain of Tharok, one of the members of the Fatal Five, is slowly rebuilding itself. So it starts out as small pieces, and by the end of the issue, it's actually put itself together into a much more coherent-appearing device. And at this time in Legion history, Tharok has mental control of Validus, one of the most powerful members of the Fatal Five. And to rescue this portion of his brain, that electronic Tharok brain within the Legion of Superheroes headquarters calls to Validus to come to the headquarters and grab it. And so the end of this issue is actually a very well-drawn, very well-paced fight between the Legion of Superheroes and Validus. And during that fight, Validus actually picks up Invisible Kid and crushes him to death, while at the same time, Invisible Kid is able to grab Tharok's now reformed brain and destroy it, ending sort of both threats. Validus then, being more of a childlike being, flies away, and the Legionnaires discover their fallen comrade. And then, in a weird sort of turn of events at the end, we end up seeing a vision of this girl, Myla, who all along we thought was living in some other dimension, and she reveals that she's actually a ghost. And now that Invisible Kid is dead, they can live together uh, in the afterlife quite happily. The last panel is Phantom Girl crying, saying, Because we know that Invisible Kid and Myla are together at last for all eternity, you know, everyone will be happy. So I have to say a lot happened in this issue in a very short period of time. This is not an era where stories are decompressed. So the story opens up with a scene of the Legionnaires testing each other to see whether or not they could repel an invasion to their headquarters. We discover Invisible Kid unconscious. We learn about him going to another dimension. We have Validus coming towards the Earth. We have a large fight with Validus, and then at the end, there's this twist. So that's an awful lot to happen over the course of, you know, 23 or 24 pages, whatever this ends up being. But, you know, it's a well-paced story, and a lot happens within it, and so it makes it a pretty meaty read. You can get a sense when you read the story that the Legion of Superheroes is in a little bit of a transition state. So some of the members are in the uh, Dave Cockrum era costumes. So Phantom Girl is now much more uh, mod in her apparel. And there is a scene where Dream Girl has a vision of Validus approaching. And she's in the more classic Mike Grell sort of, I would say, more undress than dress. And Saturn Girl is in her pink bikini costume. And yet we also have Karate Kid in a very staid tan gi. And Invisible Kid's costume is sort of that white, puffy-shouldered brown jumpsuit. Both of those costumes kind of scream 1950s Legion, whereas Dream Girl and Saturn Girl and Phantom Girl are much more transitioning into the more hippie style of uh, these early 70s issues. But the big thing that happens here is, of course, the death of Invisible Kid uh, at the hands of Validus. And this Invisible Kid never did return. In fact, the name Invisible Kid is taken up by a different person, Jacques Foucault, in the early 80s. And so this stands out as a relatively important issue in Legion history. 
I know you guys like to review specific pages in art, um, and so I tried to do that as well. I would say that my favorite page of the book is page 12, which is the one in which we see Dream Girl having her vision of a pretty scary-looking Validus sort of towering over her. There are also panels of uh, Invisible Kid talking to Phantom Girl, and we see other panels of Therok's brain sort of starting to recreate itself. So it's um, a really wonderful page capped by that more uh, scary panel of uh, the Validus vision. In particular, there is a panel of Karate Kid sort of looking up at his face, which is very classic of Mike Grell. And then in terms of favorite panels, I would say going to 20, the panel where Invisible Kid is actually crushed by Validus stands out because it really shows his sort of agony as he's grabbed by the torso. And I would also add page four, which is when the Legion are sort of skirmishing with each other. There's a very nice page of Monel wrapping up a couple of his, of his partners uh, in his cape uh, in a very dynamic pose, which is a very good piece of art by Mike Grell. This was indeed the first issue that Mike Grell did both inks and art, and so there is a small article in the middle of the book, um, and I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs. Uh, Editor's note, the reason we reduced the usual space for letters this time is to expand the allotted number of art pages from 20 to 21. Why? To make the most of introducing Mike Grell. And yet his peerless penmanship needs no introduction because it was displayed in number 202's Lost a Million Miles from Home over Dave Cockrum's pencils. So have we got news for you. First, the bad news. Dave Cockrum, who is virtually unknown in the field and gained star artist status only after we gave him the opportunity to do the Legion, has departed. Now the good news, Mike Grell, who proved his professionalism via several assignments at DC, will henceforth guide the supergroup through its eventful encounters to familiarize you with Iron Mike as he was pegged by his Vietnam vet pals. We'll explore his background in the next issue. So hopefully whoever's covering 204 will touch upon that biography. Anyways, thanks again for letting me talk about this issue, and in particular, Mike Grell Legion. As you know, it's a passion of mine, and I hope to do uh, other issues for you in the future. Thanks again. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate each comment. I know they add a lot to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or reached out to us through social media. First, we want to thank Jeff Messer and Ange for their great coverage of issues 202 and 203 of the Legion of Superheroes. The two of you made the episode extra special with your great discussion. Thank you both. John Baker wrote in about the last episode and said, The new podcast was a delightful romp through Mr. Grell's work. Enjoyed it tremendously, particularly the walkthrough of John Sable. I'm all in on anything that offers some Olympic interplay. Thanks, folks. Professionally done and interesting as always. I noticed John attended the Olympic trials for track this year. He shared some great photos and comments about that on social media. They were fun to see, so I followed up with him to learn more. It turns out he's been a track and field coach for many years, and lucky for him, the last three Olympic track trials were held in his state, and he was able to attend all three of them. Brian Mulvey wrote, Thoroughly enjoyed the latest Warlord Worlds. Love hearing the two of you go through those stories. Your synopses are so well written that even if I don't have the books in front of me, I get a great visual from your descriptions. He added, You make the podcast like a radio adventure series. Not that I'm old enough to remember them, but if your voices were coming through our antique radio, it would not surprise me one bit. Karen Williams of Between the Pages appreciated us mentioning Robert Conrad in the last episode. She let us know she was a fan of both the Wild Wild West and Black Sheep Squadron. Chris Sheehan, co-host of Weird Comics History and Cosmic Treadmill Podcasts, and the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths, 
made us smile when he shared a photo of the audio display screen in his car showing Warlord Worlds Episode 11 playing on his morning drive. And Cameron Hilton let us know that the cover on Warlord World number 27 is one of his all-time favorites. Alan Wright of the website BoldOutlaw.com saw our notice about Episode 11 and said, Looking forward to it. I've been thinking a lot about those two Green Arrow issues for my ever-expanding Green Arrow Robin Hood article. Later, Alan shared a photo of his first Mike Grell Green Arrow comic. It's the story Brand of Power from Green Lantern Green Arrow number 110. Then, Maki Leader on Twitter followed up saying his first Mike Grell was one of Green Arrow in action comics. I believe it was number 440, the one with the amnesiac crypto. I still have all of those action comics. Bought them at the local grocery store. Those were the days. I sold so many of my comics, but I always hung on to those. We love those Mike Grell origin stories. Mike Barrett let us know he discovered Warlord Worlds with Episode 7 and binge listened to catch up. Mike said John Sable is his favorite Mike Grell title and that he's a big fan of the Longbow Hunters and Bar Sinister. You have great taste. Nexus Mike started listening to the podcast recently and let us know that he really enjoyed hearing the Mike Grell interview in Episode 8. And while he wasn't familiar with John Sable, he is impressed with those stories. And he added that he especially likes the sound effects that we put into the show. Thanks, Mike. Michelle Fief, creator of the comics Copra and Zegas, learned about Warlord Worlds from our guest appearance on Michael Bailey's Views from the Longbox, covering the Legends crossover event. He checked our show out and said he especially enjoyed the interview with Mike Grell himself. Michelle enjoys old-school behind-the-scenes bits, such as how Warlord was created, and he added, it's really cool that Grell still gets inspired by his peers. Mike Tamaras let us know that he hopes we get a Star Slayer trade one day, and we'd love to see that too. Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader posted some great pictures of Green Arrow Volume 2 showing Ollie and Shadow, as well as the Iditarod race. Those were fun to see. Recently, Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun podcast and Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network reviewed the comic Miss Tree in a two-episode crossover of their two shows, and that led to some great online exchanges with Karen Williams, Norman Peeler, Greg Arujo, and Joe Crawford, and others about some double-page spreads that Mike Grell did in the Miss Tree series that featured characters from Mickey Spillane's books. Top prizes go out to Andrew Leyland from Hey Kids Comics and several other podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network, as well as our local comic expert, Keith G. Baker. They both let us know as soon as they spotted a Warlord reference in the latest issue of Nightwing. Very nice. We made sure Colonel Rick Flagg heard about that too, because he thinks the time is right for a Warlord Rebirth book, and we'd love to see that too. We were able to attend the local NC Comic Con, where we joined our friend Keith G. Baker, the second biggest Firestorm fan we know, next to the Irredeemable Shag. It's always a fun convention. Guests included Batman artist Klaus Janssen, and the big events at this year's con were tied to DC's new Young Animal line. Guests Gerard Way, Nick Darrington, Marley Zarconi, John Rivera, and more talked about titles like Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Girl, and Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye. And we know our friends Paul, Mike, and Doug of the Waiting for Doom podcast all enjoyed hearing the details from the event, especially about the panel where we got to hear artist Richard Case talk about Doom Patrol. It was a surprise for Richard and the audience when an audio recording was played at the end of the panel from none other than Grant Morrison, wishing everyone good luck on the new Doom Patrol series and calling Richard Case his greatest collaborator. Following our tweets about the event, Doug Zoeja, who runs the Doom Patrol website mygreatestadventure80.blogspot.com, was so kind to us, sending out huge compliments on Twitter saying, They love comics and people. They're amazing and awesome. Amazing! We love that word. Thanks, Doug. 
and Keith actually picked up an original sketch from Richard Case of Cliff Steele, a.k.a. Robot Man, from the Doom Patrol. And Keith surprised us with two terrific gifts. One is for the film, The Adventures of Robin Hood on Blu-ray, featuring lots of extras that we had never seen, as well as a book titled Wild Adventure, written by Howard Hill, the world's greatest archer. Howard Hill was the stunt archer for The Adventures of Robin Hood film, and he appeared in a small role in the film as one of the archers in the contest. So appropriately, Errol Flynn wrote the foreword in Howard Hill's book, Both Love to Hunt and Spend Time in the Wilderness. I've enjoyed learning about their friendship through this book, and we've loved watching the Blu-ray extras we'd never seen. Thank you, Keith. We also talked about Howard Hill on episode 38 of Ryan Daly's excellent Secret Origins podcast, because Mike Grell wove Howard Hill into the origin story of Green Arrow in an issue of Secret Origins. And we want to thank our generous friend Clinton Robson of the Coffee and Comics blog. He surprised us with a package. It was so exciting to open and find two different trades connected to series we know and love, the original Battlestar Galactica and the Green Hornet. Plus, he included a title we weren't familiar with called Lola. We could tell immediately by flipping through it that Clinton knows our tastes well. We've since read the book, and it's a great post-apocalyptic adventure with a strong female character. Thanks, Clinton. And we are happy to share that you'll hear us on a future episode of the Doctor Who podcast Straight Outta Gallifrey, hosted by Ashford. There we'll talk about the Armageddon Factor, the last story from the Key to Time season. Ashford is a great guy, and if you get a chance, check out his Twitter and Instagram pages, where you'll often see photos of him at cons dressed as the fourth Doctor, complete with K-9. And you'll also find Ashford on Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age saw our promotion about our new network, Rad Adventures. Get it? Ruth and Darren, R-A-D, Rad Adventures? Mike said, I just wanted to congratulate you both on the new network. I think that it's a very cool idea to collect them all together, and I really like the name. Now I'm so tempted to take credit for that name, but we'll have to admit that Darren thought of it. It was also his idea to put the episodes on YouTube, and I'm happy about that too. It's nice to offer options and make it easy for listeners to find us. We know we ask for listeners to contact us if we make mistakes. Well, I'm glad Nicholas Prom from Comic Reflections alerted us when he heard a quote attributed to him on our last show that puzzled him because he didn't remember writing it. Yes, I must confess that was me. I checked my notes and found the quote was actually for Mark Sweeney and not Nicholas Prom. My mistake. So our thanks should have gone to Mark Sweeney, writer of Comics Couplets and host of the podcast I'm the Gun. He wrote, Top-notch adventure comics described and dissected by DS and RS, a top-notch podcasting pair. I felt terrible about the mistake, but Nicholas and Mark were both so kind and sent me several funny and appreciative messages online. Thank you both. And since then, Mark sent another comment about Warlord Worlds on Twitter, saying, Astonishing how much comics is packed into each episode. Nothing is given short shrift. Thank you all so much. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. If we happen to miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And please forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just let us know and we'll be happy to correct that next time as well. Alan Gonzalez. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com, Allie May, Andrew Leyland from Hey Kids Comics and the Two True Freaks Network, Angelo Zarella, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford from Feathers and Foes of Birds of Prey Podcast and Straight Out of Gallifrey, BC Fan 101, Bo Edmonds, Bob Fisher, Musician Brainpower, Brian Mulvey, Bronze Age Babies, 
Chris Sheehan from the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths and the podcast Weird Comic History and Cosmic Treadmill. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris. Cullen Stapleton from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever. Daniel Reibel, David Joel, Diablo Frank from the Idlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog, and Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. Dr. G, Man of Nerdology from the Pulp to Pixel podcast. Drew Carpenter, Ed, Terry, and Nick Moore of Till Productions. Egg Emery, Epic Film Guys. Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks. Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Pupcast, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford from the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader, Jonathan Halstead, John Baker, Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Scott, Let's Talk Masters of the Universe, Marquee Leader, Mark Nelson, Mark Sweeney from the I'm the Gun blog and podcast and comics couplets, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Matches Balone. Michael Carlisle of the blog Crapbox Son of Cthulhu, Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age, Michelle Dillaire, Mike Barrett, Mike Tamaris, Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections, Noah Tipton, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rolled Spine podcast, Roy Cleary of the Silver and Gold podcast, Ryan Daly of Midnight the Podcasting Hour and Give Me Those Star Wars. Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Silver and Gold Podcast, Slangword Scott, That Film Stew Podcast, Tim Wallace of Court Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the Phantom Skull Cave Blog, Tony Greenall, Two True Freaks, Venus Lauren, and Wendy Freeman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we'll provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. And as we mentioned earlier, we've launched a network, Rad Adventures. We have a Facebook page and Twitter account where you'll get updates about all of our shows. And the best part is that we have a YouTube channel for the network. On YouTube, you can go to Rad Adventures Network and find all of the episodes of Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. You'll get the regular audio feed of the podcast, along with a picture of the cover to one of the issues we're covering in that episode. We hope you'll visit and subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review. I think it's a good way to help the show be noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show. It makes it so easy to know when a new episode is posted. You may also enjoy our other podcasts, Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. 